Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and Sean Karnicki. And I'm not going to say anything mean about Sean because this is the all-Armenian show today. Thank you, Brian. And normally our show focuses on reading and reviewing for you four or five legal cases that come down from the Court of Appeals, Supreme Court, Boring stuff, Ninth Circuit, things like that. Uh, And it's what I call 25-minute law school because we take cases that are relevant to plaintiff lawyers and we review them. But this week, we're very fortunate because we're here, first of all, at the Consumer Attorneys of California Convention in San Francisco. San Francisco, not Sacramento. We're equally fortunate because not only do we have Brian Kabatek, who's half Armenian, but we have Sean Karnikian, who's 100% Armenian and recently arrived in this country. That's that's not nice. Okay. That's not and nice. we I ha- also have I was born here. <laughs> Steve Vartazarian, who is Armenian. Is that correct, that's Steve? That's right. So Steve, before I get into and before we do all and we're gonna speak entirely in an Armenian during this during no, this. You interview, don't you don't speak any Armenian. I Brian. speak about no. twelve words. Oh, food. Food. And, and curse words. Yeah, no. Well, okay, maybe. Yeah. But um, Steve Vartazarian is one of the great trial lawyers in California. Uh, he started as a trial lawyer. We'll get to you in a second, and you can explain your own resume. But he started as a trial lawyer in Southern California, but he's expanded beyond that. He's a phenomenal trial lawyer. Uh, Cala, which is a Consumer Attorneys of Los Angeles, recently named him as Trial Lawyer of the Year. He'll be honored in the January 2020 uh, uh, convention. And we're very lucky to be with you here, uh, Steve, today on the All Armenian Show. Is so, that what we're calling it? Inch Pesas. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's it. That's the end of Brian's Armenian. No, I go. I know more. Okay. Well, let's let Steve talk. Okay. Steve, tell us about yourself. Uh, I'm just some guy who. No, you're not. Happened to go to law school uh, by accident because I wasn't done uh, having a good time uh, in uh, undergrad. And Where'd you go to undergrad? I went to uh, Oklahoma City University. I was born and raised in L.A. And the funny thing is, I had to get out of L.A. to take education seriously, and I ended up in Oklahoma. And it was a great experience, and I decided to go to law school. And long story short, I started Where did you go to law cases. school? Uh, Thomas Jefferson in San Diego. San Diego. Okay. Very good. Yeah, so shortly after that, I went to uh, work for uh, Jack DeNove, again by accident. And that's another story. And uh, I ended up trying cases somehow, some way. And it uh, turns out juries uh, listened to what was I Was working for Jack your first law job? It was. It was. Okay. And how did you get that job? <laughs> so... Because, uh, you know, my grades weren't that good. I didn't do that well on the LSAT. You got that in common with them, Sean. Right, my grades weren't <laughs> yeah. good. I didn't, do well you know, I, didn't, I didn't test that well on the LSAT, although I took the Kaplan course. I got a 148 or something like that. Uh, and so I went to what I understood was a third-tier school, Thomas Jefferson. I didn't even want to go because all the schools I applied to uh, didn't accept me, except for Thomas Jefferson, which I never even opened the envelope. Uh, but uh, I got a call in the third week of August, I think it was 1999, from one of the recruiters there saying, you've been accepted, you didn't respond. I was like, yeah, because I don't want to go to your school. And they're like, well, <laughs> come down and check it out. Our staff's pretty you know, accredited. They're from Harvard, Stanford, you name it. They're prosecutors. They're all these accomplished people. So I drove down there from L.A. and uh, I got an apartment immediately after hanging out at the campus very Wonderful people, uh, wonderful human beings, and very accomplished attorneys. And I went to law school, graduated. I could, no one would hire me uh, for whatever reasons. And so my uncle uh, knew Jack DeNove because my uncle worked as a parking attendant in 1978 in the building that Jack would uh, go and get work from for a guy named Pollock uh, way back old school. So 
Uh, they became really good friends. My uncle then became the accountant of that law firm because he was a nice guy. They brought him upstairs one day and they hired him. And so I told my uncle, I'm like, listen, I need a, I need a job. You know, I've been home. It's been like four months. You've already finished law school, passed yeah, the bar already? Yeah, passed the bar. I'm still like hanging out. I was taking trips and all these things. So I, I go to lunch with Jack and Wilkie Chung and my uncle, Serge. And uh, Jack says, I can't hire you. You're too green. But what I'll do, I'll give you 40 hours at $20 an hour to write an article for me for the advocate about Micra and its effects on you know periodic payments and, and so on. So I said, okay. So I went into the library, showed up on a Monday morning. On Tuesday, he left for trial. And I finished the article on Thursday or Friday, and he didn't come back. So I kept coming to the firm for like two months, okay? Just showing up? I didn't up. even have a parking pass. So every day, I'd get my car washed, which was $16, instead of the $32 that you'd have to pay <laughs> to park there if you didn't get your car washed. So every he day, is Armenian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every day, I just get my Armenian. I had, yeah. I had no yeah. money, and uh, I would come out of the library. Because, Were they paying you? Well, that's a different I, story. Do we have but, a, do we, is there an employment case here we could bring? <laughs> the statue the statute's run. run but, but what happened was I would peek my head out of the library because it was antiquated. I mean, there was dust everywhere. You know, given the advent of the internet, no one went in there. No one's using a library. So I start asking the associates for work. I peek my head out. Is there something I could do? I'm an attorney. I would overhear people saying, oh, I can't cover that. I'm like, I'll cover it. You know, this, that, all these medical records I was reviewing. I started settling the crappy soft tissue cases for the firm. And Jack finally got back from some trial. And I was walking down the hallway. And he comes in and he looks at me and goes, who are you? (laughs) He had forgotten (laughs) You know what I looked like or who I was because he had been gone for so long trying some weird med mal case. And uh, I was like, yeah, I'm Serge's nephew. Remember you? He's like, you're still here. I was like, yeah, man, you never came back. And so uh, the office uh, manager at that time, who's still around, Mindy Kay, she loved me. The staff loved me. And uh, later on, they had a meeting, took me to lunch and hired me uh, at very modest salary. But they hired me in 2004. And then six, seven years later, you know, I was the head associate at the firm, settling everything, doing all the expert depots, second chairing every trial. And that's how I got my foot in the door. So I just want to tell you, in all sincerity here, because we joke around a lot, but that's one of the most inspirational stories I've heard in a long time about how somebody got a job. And and seriously, you know, you just said, I'm just going to stay here until they realize how great I am. And they did. It really puts things into perspective. And you hear people sometimes saying, well, the market's not good right now. No one's hiring, things like that. I mean, you know, when I hear stuff like that, to me, you know, as a resourceful, you know, what, what, you know, we, we, my parents came to this country in 69. From? Uh, from Tehran, Iran. I'm Persian Armenian. Mm-hmm. So we're Armenian. That's so. called Barskahai. Barskahai. Yeah, that's right, Brian. Good job, Brian. Good and, job. And what I learned from watching their work ethic, their family values, and how hard they worked and their principle and their perspective on why they came to this country and the things that are available, you create your own market. You create your own luck, if you want to call it that. But you make things happen. And so I took that into everything, into getting my job, creating that opportunity for me that led me to this career. Uh, you know, people say you hit a verdict, oh, the stars have to align, and it's not within your control. Not true. It is wholly within your control. So these are some of the principles and some of the things that my folks taught me, and I use that. Yeah, you know, I use it all the time to get whatever it is that I need to get to, to have a better life and to provide 
you know, for my family, but to bring about uh, a good resolution for the clients I represent who are catastrophically injured. So, Steve, let's talk about your, your current practice, because you've had some phenomenal results, great verdicts. How long have you had your own firm? Nine years. Okay. Let's talk about some of your, your favorite cases. or case, what is the, When you started your own firm, what was the first case that came along that like, made a personal difference to you as a human being? So I started my firm, and we had no marketing budget. Um, we still don't market, but at that time, I, I had no way of getting cases. I came to a lot of Cala events, made a lot of friends. So what I got was medical malpractice cases that no nobody one wanted else wanted to touch. <laughs> And they had already been reviewed by, you know, the Heimbergs and the Fagels and, you know, and, all, and uh, guys like that. And they got passed down to the people that you never even heard of. So after that happened, I would get the call. <laughs> and so for about, I started my firm, like I said, in 2010. So for about three, four years, I would make my living on trying to get, you know, taking depositions, trying to get a good result on these capped cases. And tw- I have more 29999 settlements than anyone you know. Uh, you know, we settled one of those a month uh, for, for good reason. I mean, there was some liability. We worked really hard. That's how we kept going. Then I came across a case that no one wanted. It was a death case called Taylor versus Sierra Vista Regional Medical Center. And what happened in that case is a uh, 38-year-old guy, Tyrone Taylor, uh, went in for a routine cervical uh, fusion because uh, he had some disc issues and neuro- neurological issues in his left arm. They were going to do a discectomy. They did it, no complications, but they kept him overnight to observe him for the development of a hematoma, post-operative bleed in your neck. That's the whole reason why they keep you. So if you bleed, they can open the wound, evacuate the hematoma yeah, with it. a gloved finger, and then repatch you up. It, it, it's on the front of the neck they come in. It's called ACDF, anterior cervical discectomy infusion. So he's there, gets out of surgery. His family comes, visits him. They leave around 8 p.m. They get a call around 5 a.m. in the morning saying he's dead. Wow. So it's his wife, and he had a son, Lucas. Very nice family from Arroyo Grande. Uh, And what happened was she comes to the hospital, and they say he had a post-op complication. Uh, But we don't know why he died. We we don't know. There's nothing that can explain this. So they get her uh, authority to do an autopsy. The risk manager of the hospital hires this pathologist does the autopsy and attributes the cause of death to natural causes. That and he how old a, was he? he? He was 38. He had a fatty liver because he was somewhat obese, and he had an arrhythmia. So he, had a, he died a metabolic death. <laughs> it's like, so, that's, so she calls me and says, should I, uh, what should I do? I got this result. So I got this through you know, a number of channels. Uh, I said, let's do our own autopsy. So I hire, I can't remember who it was at the time, but I hire my own pathologist. We bring the body over, and I get her to spend $5,800 that she didn't have to do our own autopsy. And sure enough, the pathologist calls me in the middle of doing his own autopsy and shows me all the photographs of all the blood in the neck. That had pooled over there? That had pooled. So I was like, oh, crap. This is odd. Get all the medical records. Turns out at 3 a.m., guy complained of a sore throat. He says, I can't breathe. He had something called inspiratory strider, which is wheezing upon taking a breath in, Ah, ah," which means that that's the sound that's made when your upper airway begins to obstruct. Turns out there was a bleeder in the spine from an artery that wasn't uh, uh, cauterized correctly. He started bleeding, and that blood pooled up and started pushing on his upper airway, causing this whistling sound. He complained of this. 
They call the doctor at home at 3 a.m. They're like, Doc, get down here. And the nurses call them. They're like, don't worry about it. It's a sore throat. Give him some lidocaine jelly. He'll be fine. He's like, but he's panicking. Heart rate's going up. Oh, he's just anxious. Give him some Ativan. They give it to him. They thought it was a sore throat. He obstructs and he dies. So why do I bring up this case? You ask me. This is the case that put me on the map. And the reason is this. I wasn't concerned about the medical malpractice case. I was 38 years old at the time. I was going up against, I filed this case. I started taking depositions and I discovered all this. I went up against uh, two past presidents of Aboda at Central Coast. I'm not going to say their names, but they're big time up in San Luis Obispo. I was a young attorney from the Valley. Uh, you know, I didn't look like the folks up in San Luis, uh, San Luis Obispo. I didn't have the experience of the defense. And so what I discovered was the risk manager obtained a bogus autopsy to feed this woman to, you know, to get her to go home and stave her off from suing the hospital for the medical malpractice claim. They never thought she'd be savvy enough to hire an attorney. She hired me. I spent two, three years working this case up. I amended the complaint to add fraud as a cause of action. uh, And I went to trial on it. And that was in 2014. It was my, I had tried like two, three smaller cases, but I tried the hell out of this case. For a month, I was up there away from my family. My daughter had just been born, and I won that case. And in closing argument, I told the jury I wanted to get rid of the medical malpractice claim because it was capped. And I had a feeling that we're going to load the plaintiff up with damages on the wrongful on the death yeah. and tank the fraud claim. So... Uh, you know, I argued the case and then the defense gets up, says, you know, Mr. Vardazarian's crazy. He's asking you to award $5 million on this fraud claim. He didn't even say anything about the wrongful death claim. Ladies and gentlemen, you should give $8 million here. You know, that's what his life is worth. If you find that the hospital did something wrong, I object. I approach sidebar and I tell the judge, I go, your honor, he's trying to tank the fraud claim. Tell the jury to load it up on the med mail, knowing you're going to cut it down to 250. I should tell the jury about the cap overruled, you know, no way. So I get up, I tell the jury, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Miss uh, Taylor is a Christian woman. She's a God-fearing woman. And she forgives people for making mistakes, which is what happened in the medical malpractice allegation here. I know we spent a considerable amount of time over the course of this last three to four weeks discussing it. But here, when it says, was the hospital and nurse is negligent or the doctor, please say no. We don't want to hold anyone responsible for just trying to do their job and making a mistake. But when it comes to the fraud claim, when you commit an intentional act and you add insult to this horrible injury, but by lying to this woman and getting her to worry about whether her son had a heart condition or a liver condition, taking him to the doctors, not knowing what happened until I had to come and explain it to her two years later and she was horrified, that warrants a considerable amount of damages. Next day, we get a verdict. There was, they defense me on the med mal claim, and they give her four million ten thousand dollars on the fraud claim, and ten grand for expenses for the autopsy. That was my economic damages, and the rest was non-economic damages. Two million past, two million future for what they had put her through, and that's the case that put me on the map. After I tried that case, I kept hitting again and again and again. I have now, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty verdicts, seven, eight digits, and stuff like that's that amazing. since in the last five years. That's you said that was story. like your third, that, was that your like third or fourth yeah. solo trial? Yeah, and I had been defensed in every case before that with wow. the exception of one PI case that they stipulated to liability. I got $25,000. Wow. So terrific, and you're a fine lawyer, and we really appreciate you being here with us. But now we get to um, ask you some rapid-fire questions. Please. Which um, mostly have no particular meaning, but we ask them to you. 
We get quick responses. We're going to go as long as we can until we run out of clever ideas, which will probably be somewhere soon. between 30 yeah. and 45 seconds. Yeah, soon. Right? So, Sean, you go first. Okay. Um, if you Growing up, what did you want to be? I didn't know. I wanted to be successful and... and I wanted to be successful, and I know I wanted to be in an office building in a skyscraper with a successful life. What did uh, uh, what would the current Steve Vartasarian say to the twenty year old Steve Vartasarian? Do everything that you did, and do more of it. <laughs> Have that fun. I wouldn't change anything. You're super into food. I know that. So I want to talk about food for a little bit. What's like your favorite meal? If you had to pick one, sushi. Okay. Favorite Armenian food. Well. I'll, I'll, when I first started in 2009, my own firm, I know it's a rapid uh, answer. That's okay. I couldn't afford sushi. I had to go to like all you can eat, Midori. You know, Midori, I just got married. Yeah. We're trying to, you know, open our firm. And food was so important to me. And I'd go to the big sushi bars and they wouldn't take me seriously. They wouldn't seat me. You know, we would order water. We'd come, you know, we'd drink some Coors uh, Light in the parking lot. And my wife and I, we'd go and have some sushi. And, and I loved it so much. And, and that stuck with me. And it, it, I was taken back by it. I didn't like the way that I was treated, you know. I now have my own sushi bar in Woodland Hills. It's in food and wine. It's top two LA eater. That's right. And uh, it's a fine dining establishment in Woodland Hills. And it makes me really proud that I was able to do that. And so, you know, and that's, those are, that's how important it was to me. So favorite Armenian, Armenian food? Armenian food. So I'm Persian Armenian. I mean, kebab is our thing. I like a lot of stews, Persian stews. Gorma Sabzi. Gorma Sabzi is yeah. my, you know, I can explain to people what that is. So it's a stew made from, uh, I think it's kidney beans and greens mixed together in a, in a broth uh, with beef. And it's braised for several hours, served on rice. I mean, it's, it's I was going to say explain what that is because none of our listeners are really Armenian. But then I realized that our only listeners are our mothers. Our mothers. And, and they, they are. know more about right. Armenian food than we <laughs> <Right>. do, probably. <laughs> um, if you weren't a lawyer, what do you think you'd be doing? Chef. I knew that. I saw that coming. If you weren't a lawyer and you weren't a chef, what would you be? <laughs> I'd be a, uh, I would be in construction. That would be my next thing. I, I love building. I built a lot of stuff in the past five years, and I find it very enjoyable. Uh, favorite movie? Uh, I like Home Alone. I've watched it so many times with my kids. I just every time I watch it, I think it's the best movie ever. Favorite song? Oh, any song by the Eagles. Um, if you could put up a billboard that said any message, aside from like an advertisement for the firm or something, and I know you don't, you don't actively market like that, um, what message would you have up there? A billboard that you knew that millions of people would see. Love each other. Love each other. Be human towards one another. You know, even if it's somebody that you don't know, act as if it's your mother. I do that. I love everyone. I, I try my best to, to promote civility and, and things like that. That would be my message. Things like that. Well, Steve, thank you very much for being with us here today. And also, thank you for making both me and Sean feel inadequate as human beings. So we, we appreciate that very <laughs> I much. That, uh, I, I'm, I, I don't know what I, I think I'm going to go give money to charity right now. Uh, <laughs> this has been a civil action. Our special guest has been Steve Vartazarian. He's a terrific human being, a great trial lawyer, obviously much better than me and Sean, although that's a very low threshold. But notwithstanding that, thank you, Sean. And Sean, uh, I mean, thank you, Steve. You're Steve. I'm, yes. I'm, your, I'm your helper. And, you don't and, have to thank me. Uh, no, yeah. that's fine. Uh, but no, really, Steve, you, you're you're an inspiration to a lot of people, not just you know young Armenian attorneys, but just young attorneys in general. I'm sure your 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 family's incredibly proud of you. Schools like Thomas Jefferson are proud of you. The people you've worked for before are proud of you, and, and we're all proud of you. Thank so. you guys so much. I really appreciate thank you, you Steve. Me. Thank you. Thanks, man.